morning. Thank you. Good morning, Anne. Sorry? Thank you. Welcome to um, pediatric. It is pediatric grand rounds. It is November 1st. I don't have my propaganda slideshow. I'm sorry this morning. I lost the USB drive, but um, thankfully Dr. Evans uh, had already posted the code for you all. So welcome to November. Um, we have um, also some photos I'll share next uh, week from a wonderful celebration. I thought I saw Laura um, in the room from her New Hampshire Nursing Association Director Nursing Award that I mentioned. Is, is Laura here? Anyways, um, well, I'll show some pictures from that in terms of being up to some good. We today have, um, we have our local faculty after a stretch of some visiting faculty today, Dr. Rebecca Evans, who is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the Geisel School of Medicine, is, um, is presenting. Um, Dr. Evans is a graduate of Colby College in Maine and uh, Dartmouth College from the Dartmouth Institute, already received her Master's in Evaluative Clinical Sciences prior to medical school at the University of Vermont. Went through the Mayo Clinic and University of Utah for internship and anesthesiology residency and anesthesiology fellowship, pediatric anesthesiology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia before returning back to Dartmouth in uh, 2015. She um, has presented on numerous topics and is working also with David Goodman using her master's degree um, looking at uh, uh, Texas Medicaid data on a wide range of subjects related to anesthesia for neonates. But today's topic is on generally anesthesia and neurotoxicity, which I think is a very important and hot topic that all of us have been maybe paying attention to and hearing about in pediatrics and other venues. So welcome welcome to the Department of Pediatrics and uh, Dr. Evans. Thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, so my name is Becky Evans. I'm one of the pediatric anesthesiologists here. And at one of our meetings this past spring with the CHAPS group, which is a group of sort of pediatric surgeons and other people in the pediatric department along with anesthesia, there was a recent FDA warning that came up regarding children and neurotoxicity. And so someone had asked if we could maybe give a little bit of a literature review as to what that entails and how we're dealing with that um, for all of our procedural and surgical patients. So today, uh, we'll just give you a little bit of a brief history about pediatric anesthesia, where we've been and where we are now, how uh, the medications uh, that we use affect the neurodevelopment of children, the current FDA warning and their recommendations, and sort of the responses that a number of different societies and associations have had to this topic. So we'll start from the very basics with our history of pediatric anesthesia, and we'll kind of circle back around to where we are today. So it actually wasn't too long ago that there really wasn't even a um, society or provision of anesthesia available to patients. It wasn't really until the 1800s that people first even offered anesthesia for many procedures. Uh, there were alternatives that were often used in children, such as giving them a little bit of alcohol through what they would typically call a whiskey nipple. Um, but other than that, it was just kind of a grin and bear it procedure. And so surgery didn't really advance very far until about the 1800s. So what came along in the 1800s was the use of ether to help uh, patients remain both motionless as well as pain-free as people provided different procedures. Who was the first person to use ether for procedures in a little bit of a debate in the anesthesia literature? 
Um, supposedly in 1842, Crawford Long used anesthesia on a seven-year-old to do a toe amputation. However, he didn't report his findings until five years later. So no one really knows if that occurred first. The one that's usually more um, highly reported is William Morton, who was a dentist in the Boston area and did his first procedure um, down at Mass General Hospital in what is now termed the Ether Dome that you can still go and tour to this day. And he was removing a neck mass from an adult patient at that time, but they were also starting to use ether for children. Now, initially with the use of anesthesia, it was thought that anybody can deliver anesthesia. So they were often having parents hold a rag that was damp with ether to their children's face as a surgeon performed the procedure. Or they eventually moved on to having nurses provide this as well. Across the pond, over in Britain, they had a little bit of a different technique they were using. In the late 1800s, James Simpson was one of the first people to use chloroform. Um, they did not have ether available over in Great Britain at the time, and so they were using chloroform instead to help um, perform procedures. And their first routes for using anesthesia were more from an obstetric standpoint um, to provide women analgesia during labor. And this really became popularized by Dr. John Snow, um, who used it for the royal family, particularly Queen Victoria, for the birth of two of her children. In addition, Dr. Snow went on to uh, describe sort of the five stages of anesthesia that people go through, including relaxation, the excitement phase, and then sort of unconsciousness. Not much really happened in pediatric anesthesia for quite some time. It was still being a little bit challenging to administer these anesthetics. Um, they were finding that some children would undergo cardiac or respiratory arrest, and so people were kind of wondering just how safe this really was. Over in Great Britain, there were only physicians who were allowed to administer anesthesia, whereas still over here in the United States, it was sort of a variety of people that would um, perform this task. It wasn't until about pre-World War II that... Um, pediatric anesthesia really started to become a specialty. And this was started mostly by Dr. Philip Eyre, who was a gentleman in Newcastle, who was uh, very keen on providing better analgesia for patients getting hair lip repairs. And one of his colleagues at the University of Toronto, Charles Robson, was sort of the first one in North America to really sort of specialize his anesthesia practice for children. World War II put a little bit of a damper on the advancement of anesthesia for children, as you might anticipate. But after that, things picked up pretty quickly. There was some um, technological advances with the ART piece, which is the picture in the top right corner of your screen, um, that first um, was used so that the children wouldn't rebreathe their carbon dioxide, so it allowed for better ventilation during the procedure. And then the Jackson-Reese device also allowed for the administration of some positive pressure, which is the picture down below. On the far side of the picture with the child in the crib, her name was Betty Lank. She was one of the nurses at Boston Children's Hospital who really sort of improved these two technologies, reduced the amount of dead space in the Jackson-Reese, as well as provided a smaller mask for children so that it would be easier to administer anesthesia. With these advancements, the advancements in pediatric surgery also improved. And at that time, there were two sort of key pediatric surgeons that were looking for anesthesiologists to kind of lead pediatric anesthesia, both at the Children's Hospital in Boston as well as at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. So in the middle picture there on the top, that's Robert Smith. He was the first um, chairman of pediatric anesthesia at Children's Hospital in Boston. And he was assigned by Dr. Ladd to sort of oversee all of the anesthesia that was ongoing for children in this location. 
And through this, he was able to develop further procedures as the anesthesia um, world developed to provide better care for children. The bottom right man is Dr. Lee. He was a gentleman who started out at Montreal Children's, and his most pivotal thing was when he moved to UCLA. He really started having conferences around the country that brought people together to help further the knowledge of pediatric anesthesia. And in the top left there, one of the best-known pediatric anesthesiologists is Virginia Apgar, who made her biggest influence with the Apgar score, both in the anesthesia and pediatric world. The crossover between pediatrics and anesthesia continued um, into the 60s and 70s. At this time, it was common for people to undergo training both in the specialty of pediatrics as well as in the specialty of anesthesia in order to be deemed fit to take care of children. So in the bottom picture there, um, the gentleman, Alan Kahn, he worked on hypothermia and um, resuscitation of children from freshwater drowning. Uh, George Gregory is the gentleman on the top in the colored picture. He was from UCSF, and he was one of the first um, people to bring CPAP into the NICU. He was also an anesthesiologist. Jack Downs is the gentleman down on the bottom. He went over to Sweden and looked at their pediatric intensive care unit and brought the first pediatric intensive care unit back to the United States at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And then in the other top picture there is Dr. Barry Fritz. He's from the University of Virginia. And he was interested in the resuscitation of children and first came around with balanced electrolyte solutions. So there's been a big crossover sort of between pediatrics and anesthesia and advancing care in children. Care became more specialized in the 1980s and 90s. We started to tackle the more challenging children. Um, congenital cardiac care really started to blossom, as did the procedures associated with that. We took on the challenges of pain in children um, and how to best provide relief for them. The Society of Pediatric Anesthesia was formed at that time, and also there was a focus on providing anesthesia to children outside the operating room and how to best train people in providing sedation. The 21st century continued to grow with both safety and specialization in anesthesia. Regional anesthesia was brought into the operating room to help reduce the amount of anesthesia risk that um, was associated with patients and to provide them with better pain care. We took on the challenging topic of chronic pain, um, which is still being highly investigated today. Safety and quality has always been a top concern for anesthesiologists as well as other people, and particularly in taking care of children. So the use of simulation really started to blossom. And also the board certification became available for the first time in the last five years for pediatric anesthesiologists. But then we kind of got into a little bit of a roadblock. We were doing really well. We were really advancing care, taking great care of children, but then there was some data that came out about fetal alcohol syndrome. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And they found that some of the mental retardation that they saw with fetal alcohol syndrome they thought was due during the synaptogenesis period where the children were being exposed to NMDA and GABA receptors. And they were seeing that this was calling it, causing an increase in cell death in these children. So just a little refresher on synaptogenesis in case you're not quite up to date with your brain development. Uh, synaptogenesis is the brain growth spurt period. It usually occurs in the late trimester up to three to four years of life. And this is sort of the time period where all the connections are being made in children's brains. So you can see on the picture on the bottom there, on the left is the newborn time period. And there are a few little synapses there, not too many. And as you move over across the picture to the adult time page, the synapses increase. 
you can see the most number of synapses is noted at that two-year time point. So there's a lot of synapses at that time, usually about 100 trillion, and then they kind of get pruned down as you're an adult to ones that may not be quite as useful as you think. So a lot of growing <laughs> occurs during that time period. Um, and so that's sort of the synaptogenesis time frame there. So the concern regarding anesthesia was that it looked like blockade of those NMDA receptors was a problem for children during this time period. And we block them regularly with the medications that we give, particularly with ketamine and nitrous oxide. And then the other problem was excitation of the GABA receptors, which we also activate regularly with our anesthetic drugs. So if you look back at these two drugs, this kind of eliminates almost all known anesthesia drugs that we can administer to children. So we have our NMDA receptor one. So ketamine we often use for sedation for in kids, nitrous oxide potentially for sedation or pain. And then these are sort of more of our general anesthetic ones. We have our inhaled anesthetics, propofol, benzodiazepines. So someone said, well, well, wait a minute here. If we're having trouble with kids with fetal alcohol syndrome in these receptors, what are these anesthesia people doing to children? So also in the 21st century came Smart Tots. So this is an um, organization that was developed by the International Anesthesia Research Society, which is a group of anesthesiologists that uh, work to um, promote research in anesthesia. And this Smart Tots is a group of people who are looking into what is the impact of anesthesia on children and at what ages and what different anesthetics are provided. Are we seeing any problems with kids? So this is a flourishing department that's very active. Um, it's international as well as nationally supported. Um, and so they're the ones who we're using to investigate this challenging question. They've made quite a bit of progress. Um, if you go into Google Scholar and you type in anesthesia and pediatric neurotoxicity, you'll find 17,400 articles in 0 0.08 seconds. <laughs> Fortunately, we're not going to go through all those today <laughs> for everybody's sake. Um, but there are eight seminal articles that Smart Talks uh, reports on their website as to sort of that were, have been pivotal in uh, this research on children and neurotoxicity. And there are a couple of studies that are still in progress um, that I think will help us guide our future um, <coughs> research in children as well. So the first study that was done to sort of see are we having any trouble with these NMDA receptors, was done back in Germany in the 1990s. Um, and they were looking at seven-day-old rats who they're in sort of their prime synaptogenesis period during this time. And they exposed them to an NMDA antagonist for different lengths of time. And they wanted to see, after these rats had been exposed, what did sort of their histopathology look like afterwards? Were they having an increase in their apoptosis? Now, this particular NMDA antagonist we don't typically use for anesthesia, but it was widely available to them, and that's what they chose to use. And what they found was that there was a 3 to 39-fold increase in the rats who were exposed to either 8 or 16 hours of this uh, particular NMDA antagonist. And you can see from their slides here, if you look at the top ones, the one on the right um, is a normal brain, and then the darker one next to it is all of the um, cells that have apoptosed. So the particular staining they use um, highlighted cells that had apoptosed. So you can see quite a difference between the normal and the apoptosed cells. And then the other slides um, 
The two down the bottom with the big dots, those are electron microscopy, just to kind of really highlight that apoptosis that's going on. And then the, um, the other slide shows a normal cell, eight hours and then 16 hours of this NMDA antagonist. So not looking very good if you're a rat and you have synaptogenesis and you get an NMDA um, drug. Well, that was very interesting, but we don't typically use that NMDA antagonist in anesthesia. What we usually use are midazolam, nitrous oxide, and isoflurane. So the folks at the University of Virginia, they said, okay, we can still use the rat. That's a pretty easy model to use. We know this is the appropriate age, but let's actually expose them to something that we're gonna more likely use, as well as let's run them through a couple of mazes and we'll see how well they do with that. Like maybe it doesn't matter that they have more apoptosis, they can still function fine. But what they found was kind of interesting. They found that with isoflurane, which is our, one of our inhaled anesthetics, that the um, rats that got a lower dose of isoflurane, they did okay. They weren't quite as bad, but the ones who got a lot of isoflurane, they didn't do very well. Um, they had a lot of apoptosis. Nitrous oxide, it didn't seem like the amount of nitrous oxide they administered really impacted the apoptosis as, all, as well. And the midazolam didn't seem to have much difference either. However, when you combined things, it became um, a synergistic increase in the amount of apoptosis that was seen. So if you added midazolam to a low-dose isoflurane that you didn't typically see apoptosis, you started to see apoptosis. And then if you gave them the triple cocktail of the combination of all three, the apoptosis was really at its worst. And these were the rats that had difficulty making it through the maze and remembering how to do things. So uh, these are just some more slides that they um, had of their different um, segments that they took of the rat brains. The one concerning thing about this is that it's rare that we give kids just one anesthetic. Usually we're more in this triple cocktail area. So this was a little bit concerning as well. But rats aren't exactly like kids. So next we moved on to um, doing these studies in monkeys to see, well, this is panned out in a more larger mammal that is similar to a child. Um, and they looked here at administering ketamine for three hours through an IV, which is a pretty typical surgery time frame, or 24 hours through an IV. And they looked at a bunch of different groups. They looked at um, monkeys who are still um, within their mother's womb to see, catch sort of the late trimester, beginning of synaptogenesis. They looked at monkeys who were five days out, who were kind of right in the heat of their synaptogenesis, and then 35 days out, um, who are sort of at the tail end of their synaptogenesis. And from this, we learned that three hours across all the group, no problem. They didn't have any change in the rate of apoptosis as opposed to the other um, control studies. But if you gave ketamine for 24 hours, it was most concerning for those in the early part of their synaptogenesis and right in the thick of their synaptogenesis. But it seemed to go away once you got to the 35 days out. And the graph at the bottom just shows sort of the control for three hours. Then if they got ketamine for three hours, so you can see there in the bar graph, no real change. And then the next one over is the control for 24 hours and then ketamine for 24 hours. And you can see that big jump in the bar graph there. So it looks like from this study that Three hours of IV ketamine seems to be okay if you're a monkey. But kids aren't monkeys. So 
The only way we could really help study kids was if we looked backwards. So at the Mayo Clinic, they tend to gather research data on pretty much everyone who walks through the door. So they had a database from 1976 to 82 that looked at all their children who were being anesthetized. So they took all comers of kids who were less than four years old that underwent anesthesia. The one caveat is that they included their cardiac surgery kids, who some people would argue are a different population altogether. Going on pump can have its own sort of side effects um, on neurodevelopment. So a little bit of a muddy um, group here that they looked at. And then they looked at things that you're probably more concerned about. How well are these kids learning? Are they having any developmental problems with their reading, writing, or their math? And at this time frame, um, the most commonly used anesthetics were halothane and nitrous oxide. So this is a little bit different from what we use today. Halothane isn't still used for anesthesia. What they found was that if the kids had received one anesthetic, they were good to go. No problem, no increased risk in their learning um, disabilities. But if they received two anesthetics, their hazard ratio increased by 1.59. And it seemed to be cumulative that if you receive three anesthetics, your hazardous ratio increased even more. So it looked like based on this time period, if you were receiving anesthesia at multiple times, that you were at an increased risk for having difficulty with learning. So we went back to the monkey, because uh, it was challenging to find data on children at this time frame. And they wanted to see, well, you know, we saw that three hours wasn't so bad for kids, but 24 hours is obviously bad. So let's try to pick something in the middle, nine hours, and we'll see if that has any impact on um, children and their, uh, or on the monkeys and their apoptosis. So from here, we saw that, as before, there was no increase in nerve cell death if you were at the three-hour mark, but it was significant for both the nine and the 24-hour mark. So you can see on these graphs here, these are just three different stains, um, from the top being one stain, the middle is a different stain for cells, and the bottom is a different stain. Across the bottom is the three groups on the x-axis. So we have three hours, nine hours, and 24 hours. And then our control group is the dark one, and the ketamine is the lighter one. So you can see as the time period of exposure to ketamine increases, the amount of cell death also increases across all the three different stains that they looked at. So ketamine's nice, but we don't typically use that for general anesthetic. It's good for sedation, but often we use other um, anesthetic agents as well. So next they looked at isoflurane in monkeys to see, well, how does this impact their um, nerve cell death? So six-day-old monkeys, again, in the peak of their synaptogenesis period, they exposed them to five hours of isoflurane, um, which is a lengthy case. Um, and they found that there was a 13-fold increase in the amount of apoptosis that was seen in comparison to the controls. So it looks like monkeys and isoflurane isn't a good combination. The Mayo Clinic then relooked at their data from the same time period, that 1976 to 1982 cohort. And this time they were looking at kids who were less than two years old. They took out the cardiac kids, so their number's a little bit smaller. Now they're down to 350 children who received anesthesia. And they worked with the state of Minnesota to try and see if they um, had any differences on their achievement tests, if there were differences in the IEPs that were administered to children, or any um, diagnoses of learning disabilities. 
So learning disabilities definitely showed an increase in their um, risk if they'd had multiple anesthetics, as was seen in their previous um, study. And achievement tests, the kids scored significantly lower um, than with other um, children if they had been exposed to multiple anesthetics. No sort of difference in IEPs um, for either behavior or language. And then these are just some of their graphs here on the side. The first one is for learning disabilities. And that top line that sort of sticks out, um, that one is if you have received multiple anesthetics, two or more. The next line down there is for one anesthetic, and the dark solidish line is for zero anesthetics, your control group. That middle group there is your IEPs, so no difference in the number of kids who were um, given an IEP. And then the bottom level has to do with your achievement scores. So the score is actually worse if it's higher. So again, we have two anesthetics on the top, one anesthetic in the middle, and then the control group on the bottom. So it looked like from all of those studies that multiple anesthetics don't seem to be a good thing for kids. If they are young, it doesn't seem to be a good idea. And if you give them to them for a long period of time, that also doesn't seem to be a good idea. So some people were interested in saying, well, how do we know about their environmental factors? Maybe it's just that children who are going for procedures or surgery are a different group altogether than children who are not. Like maybe they have some socioeconomic problems or some other factor that's influencing their ability to learn at home. So the PANDA trial, um, which is out of Columbia and has worked in conjunction with a couple of hospitals in Australia, they did a sibling study to see if siblings from the same family, one of them who had to get an inguinal hernia repair under general anesthetic, and the other one or two siblings, or however many siblings they had who didn't get anything, if they had any difference between their siblings in regards to their language and cognition. <coughs> and what they found was that the siblings who received anesthesia, they still had lower scores in their cognition and their expressive language, um, and that they had an increased risk for having disabilities. And this was true even with just a single exposure to anesthesia. So it seemed like maybe it wasn't just an environmental thing that's being associated here, but that maybe there is some risk for um, kids who are even in the same family. That's all the definitive data that we sort of have at this point. There are some twin studies that have been done that show some conflicting data as to the twins, who um, one who has anesthesia and the other one doesn't, that the second twin does just as poorly as the one who had anesthesia. That's out of the Netherlands. There's some other studies in other places that show conflicting data with these other ones that I've shown. So it's still kind of a big pot of soup mix that's a mess. Um, some people right now are looking into whether the use of local anesthetics instead of a general anesthetics helps children out. Ongoing right now is the GAS study, and this is out of Boston Children's Hospital that's working in conjunction with, I think it's 16 other hospitals around the world. What they're looking at is uh, inguinal hernia repair for children and using um, a spinal anesthetic versus a general anesthetic. The patients get randomized as they're entered into the trial. Um, they have to be uh, less than 60 weeks old at the time. And then they're doing some developmental testing both at two and five years out to see um, how that anesthesia impacted their, um, their cognition and learning. Uh, they haven't completed their enrollment yet. They're hoping to get 720 patients, which they estimate will be done around the end of January. There wasn't any preliminary data posted on the clinical trials website, uh, so we're still kind of waiting to see what that will show. 
a little bit closer to home, we kind of have our own uh, randomization process um, up at the University of Vermont. They are one of the leaders in placing spinals in anesthesia. They have the largest registry for children who have uh, received spinal anesthesia. Um, they use spinals for children getting circumcisions, pyloromyotomies, and inguinal hernia repairs. Um, so what we did for a little project, or what Dr. Tanzer did for a little project, was they looked back at um, kids between 2000 and 2013 in the state of Vermont who had received anesthesia. The generals are probably the children who came here, um, and then the spinals are the children who went up to the University of Vermont. They looked at the New England Scholastic Achievement scores, and the preliminary data shows that there's no difference um, in their scoring if they received a general or a spinal anesthetic. So it may not be just the anesthesia that's causing them any um, change in their scholastic achievements. We're not really sure at this time what that is, but they still need to go through their final data analysis before uh, making conclusions from this trial. So what did the FDA think about this? Well, we've actually had three meetings on this subject, the first one back in 2004, to try and determine, you know, is there any warnings that we should be placing on anesthetic agents for children? Um, and they haven't made any warnings until their most recent meeting uh, that happened within the last year. And what they said was that either repeated or lengthy, which they uh, deemed greater than three hours, use of general anesthesia or sedation, during surgeries or procedures for kids who are less than three, or if you're pregnant in your third trimester of life, may affect the development of children's brains. So they left it pretty open. Um, it's pretty loose. Um, may affect the development of children's brains isn't very specific, and I think that's because we don't really have any great data to say what specifically might happen. The warnings that... Um, are being applied go on these medications. So any of our inhaled anesthetics, benzodiazepines, automidate, which we very rarely use in children anyways, uh, ketamine, penobarbital, also rarely used, more so as a sedative, but not very common, propofol, and methohexatol, which I find interesting because I don't think anybody uses this in children. We use it mostly for ECT procedures in adults because it triggers seizures. So <laughs> I'm not sure this would be a drug I'd choose to use in a child anyways. Um, but nonetheless, the FDA uh, added warnings to all of these. They did say there were some exceptions. Um, if the child is having a life-threatening condition, you can still put them under anesthesia and bring them to the operating room. The things that they thought were life-threatening were serious congenital heart defects. Um, again, a little bit loose there. Um, esophageal atresia, intestinal blockage or twisting, gastroschisis and omphalocele, diaphragmatic hernias, congenital lung lesions, pyloric stenosis, and then maybe not necessarily life-threatening, but potentially concerning for further development. They listed cleft lip and palates as well as uh, undescended testicles. So it's still okay to send kids to the emergency or to the operating room if they need to go. So how did the Society of Pediatric Anesthesia respond to this? Well, they were a little soft about it too. They said, we still think anesthesia is safe for kids but we think the FDA put this warning out so that patients can make a more informed decision about whether or not they want their child to undergo anesthesia. And this statement that they made was supported not only by the anesthesia societies around the world, including the Asia Society for Pediatric Anesthesia, but also a number of other groups, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Academy of Pediatric Surgeons, um, the Society of um, Obstetrics and um, Prenatal 
medication, the Society of Maternal and Fetal Medicine. So it was a very sort of global, all hands on deck response to this statement. Here at Chad, we also had a response um, that we uh, provide to parents who ask questions about this. We say that if it is possible, we recommend that you delay your child's surgery until they're three years of age. Um, that anything that is necessary in terms of surgery or diagnostic procedures, we will provide for your child. We are not going to withhold necessary treatment for your child. That if your child needs sedation and it's appropriate, we will provide sedation. That if we can use any sort of alternatives, which includes the help from our friendly child life faculty, that we will certainly do that. And that also includes sort of feed and swallow studies for diagnostic testing in younger children. And that we will make reasonable attempts to limit surgery whenever it's safe to do so for children to under three hours. So what about maybe some other medications? Is there anything else that we can use to help kids keep kids comfortable and asleep during anesthesia? Well, they haven't studied dexmedetomidine yet, so as far as we know, that's safe, but we haven't really looked into it. So that may or may not be safe. That might be an alternative for the meantime that we can use for sedation. Opioids have been shown not to cause any apoptosis or changes in the brain, so that one's safe for right now. Xenon is an anesthetic gas that um, you can use for children that has also been shown to be safe. However, you need a special um, vaporizer on your anesthesia machine in order to use xenon gas. It doesn't hook in with our normal vaporizers that we have, and it's extremely expensive. So you'd have to buy a new anesthesia machine, which is usually about $500,000, plus you'd have to buy some xenon which is very expensive to purchase. So nobody in the United States right now uses xenon. I don't think there's anybody anywhere that uses xenon, quite honestly, because it's so outrageously priced. Um, so that may be an option in the future, but it's not really feasible at this time. <laughs> so in conclusion, pediatric anesthesia has done a lot of great things for kids in the past in, the past in terms of improving both surgical and diagnostic care of children. Um, with this new onset of concern for neurological development, Smart Tots has been organized and is developing research currently to help um, find out what is going to be safest for children regarding anesthesia care. Um, there's a bunch of animal studies that are out there and some retrospective cohorts that have led us in some direction regarding anesthesia care, but at this time it's still a little bit muddy. Prospective trials are currently underway. We're still waiting for some data to come in as to um, what those show. There's some anesthetic drugs that may be available to us in the future um, to provide better care but are not really available right now. And that we're going to continue to provide as safe an anesthetic care as we can to these kids during this time. And there are a bunch of references. Jillian? So is the age cutoff based on... Um, Understanding when the vast majority of that the um, synaptogenesis is occurring—is that why we picked age three? Yeah. Do we have any data in humans or in animals? And I don't know what. I know that there are some uh, days of rat gestation that correlate to mm -hmm. months and years of child development. Um, but does that do those studies show that there's a cutoff in, in age? I know they say young, the younger versus the older, but it seems to be pretty broad categories of young and old. Yeah, so I think they're trying to focus it right now on the synaptogenesis period because they feel like that's when kids are most at risk. There are some people that wonder um, if apoptosis is the correct thing for us even to be looking for. Like, is this really the thing that is causing changes in their development or is it not? So 
we're using synaptogenesis right now as sort of that starts to decline after they're about three years old, so maybe that's a good spot, but I don't think anybody really knows. The only children's studies really looked at more like four years old or two years old, so it's kind of somewhere in the middle <laughs> um, or whatever that's worth. A little bit. I mean, every kid's different. I mean, their synaptogenesis is going to change at different points. So, but approximately four is when things start to get better. Thank you for that nice talk. Um, I a couple of questions. First of all, you, you touch on the apoptosis, and I was wondering if there. I know that's used because it's easier to look for in okay. a sense. But but are there any other markers that have been looked at? And second, some of these drugs you give to kids not for anesthesia but for long-term sedation, for mechanical ventilation, ECMO, things like that in the unit. Yeah. Have there been any concerns about this issue raised with that approach? Patient population. Yeah. So I think it's more so seen that those children who are getting long-term sedation for mechanical ventilation or for ECMO, that it's seen as a life-saving measure. Um, so it's sort of like your children that are coming in for emergent surgery. Like it's, you kind of take that off the table because they need the sedation in order to survive through whatever sort of critical period they're in. So I don't think anybody is looking at that at this time. I think they're more so looking at the specific anesthetic exposure. Um, if there's anything that we could do in the elective time period to help uh, reduce their risk. Um, in terms of other than apoptosis, I know there are some groups that are starting to look at what are some other drivers that could be associated with this besides apoptosis. Um, I'm not certain exactly what those are at this time, but I know down at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, there's a group that's researching some other things. So, Dr. Cotero. Thank you for your talk. The um, study, the GAS study, that mm -hmm. yeah. Are they? Do you know? Are they able? Have they been recruiting patients? And yeah, they're pretty much close to being done, as far as I know. It, are they going by just whatever anesthetic was given? No, so they're randomizing them. So the patients who come in, they get randomized. Um, you know, you get your little envelope that says your patient will have a spinal, or your patient will have general. Um, so, and it's kind of nice. It's an international study, so it's places all over the world. Um, and so, well, I think that's probably going to be one of our strongest studies to show yeah, benefits, uh, but I feel advised. This is extremely difficult to do. Mm -hmm. um, it is. Um, I think for those that are sitting out here to understand these clinical questions, we've been trying to participate in a study looking at the, um, the difference of repairing an inguinal hernia in the premature baby right away, waiting six months when they're a little bit older, and then providing neurodevelopmental studies two years later. We have yet to enroll a patient in the study from here. We've been doing, we've been participating supposedly for about three years. And they have keep increasing the number of, uh, you know, hospitals participating in this uh, multi, you know, multi-center uh, uh, study because we haven't been able to enroll enough patients. We have patients that would qualify, but there's always something that excludes them, including the parents have the decision, mm -hmm. and almost always they opt out or they decide they decide in their head which 
of the arms is better, mm -hmm. and they decide what they're going to do rather than allowing to be randomized. We've not had anybody randomized. So, you know, if, if you go through the discussion of saying, well, maybe spinal might be better, uh, mm -hmm. they get that in their head, uh, I'm wondering how they're actually accruing patients because it's, it is not easy. Yeah. So it's, sorry. No, it's okay. She's <laughs> Um, I, I'm a primary care doc, so this is very outside my wheelhouse, but I am wondering in the communication part of this, how you communicate these risks with families at this point. It's now, I'm sure, on the mommy blogs. I'm sure it's on the, what is that, what, that Facebook page, Mommy Doctors something or other? PMG. Yeah, so PMG. Physician Mommy Group. And, uh, yeah. I'm sure it's all out there. So as you're taking a child who does need life-saving surgery or <coughs> needs maybe not life-saving surgery but an inguinal hernia repair right now. How are you and anesthesia communicating with families about these potential risks? Well, surprisingly, you don't have as many parents ask as you might anticipate. Mm -hmm. um, usually parents are pretty anxious on the day of surgery when their child is coming in. Um, I think they're just wrapped up in, in everything else as opposed to thinking long-term about their child's cognitive development at this point. Um, and parents who do ask, I usually tell them that Right now, we have a lot of research that's done in um, non-children who are done in rats and other animal studies that looks like there may be a difference in their cognitive development that we're still actively researching as to what those true impacts are and that um, we feel that right now the risks of undergoing one anesthetic are less than that of um, withholding the surgery from your child is what we usually say. If it's a life-threatening uh, situation, then we usually say, you know, obviously the medical risks of your child not having this procedure are highly outweigh the risks of your child having a cognitive decline in the future. Thank you. And we get it in clinic as well, and mm -hmm. I usually mm -hmm. refer to anesthesia, but also say if we can postpone it, we'll postpone it. Mm -hmm. it's, if it's elective, it's something you can wait for. Mm -hmm. How hard is it to use one anesthetic versus, I know you usually use a combination, but... Yeah. Um, so if you wanted to use one anesthetic that, let's, if you wanted to use just a gas, um, you could just use sevoflurane. Um, you'd need to give them some pain control, and we know that opioids are okay. Or you could have your surgeons do a block, or you could do some sort of a block. Um, that's okay, but it usually comes with other risks. So usually the kids are at a risk for higher rate of emergence delirium. Um, if you use just one anesthetic. Um, it's found that if you use multiple anesthetics, they tend to have less emergence delirium. So if they have emergence delirium, it not only puts the child at risk for injuring themselves in the recovery unit, but also your other staff as well. It's generally not a good satisfier in terms of parent satisfaction. <laughs> um, and oftentimes you'll put them back off to sleep um, if um, they wake up sort of in that state. And often the second time they wake up, they generally do better. Um, so it's a little tricky. If you were to just use one IV anesthetic, no gas, you have to get an IV in them while they're awake, um, which can also be a patient dissatisfier. Um, so it's kind of, it's a little bit tricky to use just one anesthetic. Could you, you could get the IV in, like some mm -hmm. propofol. I mean, could you use that for the whole procedure and just use that? You could. Um, our picky friends often remind us of the risk of propofol infusion syndrome if your case goes too long. Um, and usually the rate that we run our propofol at is a lot higher than the rates that are deemed to be the max for propofol infusion syndrome. Usually it's about 50 mics per kilo per minute for propofol infusion syndrome, and we usually run them at like 
200 mics per kilo <laughs> per minute. So um, I don't know if we on the flip side causing more problems than good. Uh, but we could try. We could certainly try if we could get the IV in. Um, yeah. Could you explain the Vermont versus New Hampshire data as far as neurodevelopmental outcome with spinal versus general? Yeah, so it seems like, um, so they take the same New England scholastic test that um, I think all of New England takes. Um, and it looks like the, so the guys up at UVM, they, all of their kids, they have a, um, a system that has been going on for, I think, at least 10 or 20 years at this point. Yeah, yeah, that um, was started by Chris Abajian quite a while ago. Um, and they, they are set up to make the spinal work for these kids. Um, it's very hard to develop that system if you don't use it every day or for all the procedures. Um, it can be done, but um, you basically take the little kid and you kind of roll them up in a ball. Um, usually the surgeon will kind of hold them in a ball. Um, you'll clean off their back, give them a little bit of numbing medicine, and then you uh, place a spinal needle in sort of the L4, L5 space. Um, get this small little drip of CF CSF that comes back and you administer some local anesthetic through there. The trick is that you probably have at the most 90 minutes. Um, so it can be a little bit challenging if you're trying to teach at the same time to get these procedures done. Um, if the nurses accidentally lift the kid's legs up, then all the anesthetic goes up to their head and they can stop breathing. Um, and then you have to intubate them and put them under general anyways. So uh, it's, it, takes a, it takes a whole operating room to really get that procedure done and do it correctly. Um, so you basically have to have your surgeons like almost scrubbed and ready to go by the time you put the spinal and get the drapes on, get the surgery going. Because most of the surgeries take somewhere around 45 minutes to an hour, so you don't have a lot of leeway. No, I think it's a very complex because of all the different multi-factors that, that are involved. And even the data that I like the best, which was the twin study, doesn't really account for the differences in stress mm -hmm. for the child who's getting surgery versus the child who's not getting right. surgery. So, yeah, super hard question to address. Mm -hmm. yeah. How do they keep the children quiet if they give them a spinal? They give them a little bit of sweeties. Mm -hmm. and they, yeah, and they suck on it and they just fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, most of the time. They may, they may wiggle their arms a little bit, and they just kind of gently, you know, hold them down, and, and they go from there. Yeah, that's if you get the spinal to set up. I mean, they almost always get it to set up up there because they do them all the time. But um, it's if you get the spinal to set up properly. So, Julie? So it sounds like they, some of the geriatric studies that I have not reviewed carefully, when they look at local versus general, they're not seeing differences because they've been very concerned about... Um, not as much cognitive changes, but some of the sort of more dementia, temporary dementia after anesthesia. Yeah. And they don't see differences. Um, and then in this case, it sounds like most of the effect is after three, like more than three hours. And it sounds right. like the spinal cases are shorter anyway, mm -hmm. which may explain why they're having the same outcomes on their tests. Right. Is because you're, con you're comparing a short general anesthesia to a short spinal, mm -hmm. and maybe it's the short, and it's not the... The anesthetic itself, and yeah. Spinal for a five-hour surgery, which is right. you want to replace the general. And Shirley, yeah. that New England standardized test, as yeah. Nina and I were talking yeah. about, is a really gross measure of, of neurocognitive status. I mean, it really sets a minimum bar. It doesn't actually test 
you know, the subtleties of neurocognitive outcomes and neurodevelopmental well, outcomes. Well, and this is a technical point, but it's probably worth saying, um, what are you powered to show with 68 patients? Yeah. 68 patients. I mean, yeah. I mean the, the, the effect size would have to be enormous. Well, it, isn't there a, a, a possible complication rate with spinal anesthesia? So if you did enough of them, you might end up with some disaster. about procedures that maybe just don't need sedation? I mean, I think there's still a lot of hospitals that are using sedation for things that we are not using sedation for here, and I just wonder your thoughts on sort of how to target that kind of behavior. Yeah, so I think we're a little bit cheated because we work up in pain-free, too, so we feel like Hopkins gets sedation for everything. <laughs> <laughs> the one that goes in MRI that we see get sedation, um, so I think it's a little hard for us to to feel like there are children who are not getting sedation. I don't know. There are some. <laughs> there are. That's good. That's good. Because <laughs> we feel like, oh, my gosh, here comes another kid for an MRI that needs sedation. Um, and we see all the dental kids that get sedation, too. Um, so I'm, we're probably a little bit biased because we just don't see those kids that don't, don't get it. But I'm not sure if there's a push to reduce that risk outside of the, the anesthesia realm. Excellent um, discussion. I think there's more data accruing. We'll see what the PDF says. We'll ask you back in a year or two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> As Dan says, he can't even accrue 